Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at SerialBox.com, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. I'm here today with Nell Freudenberger. Nell is the author of the short story collection, Lucky Girls, and the novels, The Dissident, The Newlyweds, and the upcoming Lost and Wanted, release date April 4th, 2019. She is a recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship, a Whiting Award, and a Coleman Fellowship from the New York Public Library. She was named one of the New Yorkers 20 under 40, which I can now give up on ever attaining myself now that I'm 42. She graduated from Harvard and has an MFA from New York University. She currently lives in Brooklyn, New York with her family. So welcome, Nell, to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for having me. So Lucky Girls, your first collection of stories, was based on a story by the same title that you had published in The New Yorker in 2001. So I want to hear the story, basically, of how that happened. You were working at The New Yorker at the time. Go from there. I was working as an editorial assistant, and I'd come there from an MFA program at NYU. So I had some stories, and I had a writing routine, and I would usually get up before work and do a little bit, you know, not a lot. 
an hour and a half or two hours in the morning, and they had a— I think that's kind of a lot before work, but— Okay, yeah, anyway, I mean, but we, were, we were young then. Yeah, was, that's true, that's true. It was that's easier true. to get up early, okay, and publishing right. doesn't start at 8 in the morning. And so I had a story, and The New Yorker was doing a, a debut fiction contest that was for people who had never published before, and that was definitely me. And, you know, I the only story I had that I felt comfortable showing that was finished took place in India. And I think I thought at the time that, you know, I just— I sort of didn't have a, a right to write about that place. It wasn't my place. I had spent a lot of time there. And I think the the time I was writing in the morning was a way to kind of escape back there and, and be in a different world. And so that was what I'd been working on. And I, I gave it to Bill Buford, who was the, the fiction editor. Most of the work, you know, was sent in or sent in by agents of writers who hadn't published yet. And later, one of the other fiction editors told me that Bill had read it, and then they had all read it, and they said— that they liked it, but they thought the ending was really abrupt. And it turned out that Bill had dropped the last four pages behind his couch. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of luck in all sorts of ways. But it was it was great when it was published. It was really exciting. Wow. So what happened after that? Were you just, like, over the moon? Did everybody come running and ask you to turn it into a collection of it? Like, how did it turn in from that amazing story to the collection of stories? Yeah, there were agents who were interested in it just because The New Yorker is that kind of platform. You know, it wasn't an amazing, happy, I think it it's sort of like you get what you've always wanted and then it's really scary and, and you feel kind of like under a spotlight. And I remember it being kind of a tough, a really? tough time, just feeling really self-conscious and not sure that I could write a book of stories, you know, that was like that one. I think I, I, knew, I think I knew that that was the best thing I had done so far and that I didn't, the old work that I had, I had a novel that I had written in graduate school and some other stories, and I just knew that I would have to start over from the beginning. And it was scary to sign a contract for a book that, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't know if I could necessarily write. And you were, what, like 26? I was 26. So I wasn't, you know, I, I was a, a reasonable age. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't I remember, that young. <laughs> I remember so well reading your book when I was graduating from business school and thinking like, oh my gosh, she's like my age. This is crazy. Look it's at this so amazing. nice that people who were in business school had time to read fiction. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what I was doing in business school. I was like a, a misfit. But yeah, well, anyway, it's so neat to though have seen your whole career progress over all this time from 20 years ago when you started. And I never would have thought at the time when you were like this rising star that you would be feeling insecure about it. I just assumed like, oh, she must be just over the moon. It's like interesting to hear that that wasn't how you were feeling. Well, I think for women especially, it was strange at that age to be, you know, to do photo shoots and be in magazines because, you know, I was just at trying to be a writer. And it's not that I, I was very grateful for the attention because it gave me the ability to, to leave my day job, which I loved, but, you know, the time to write the book. So selling the book in advance did that. It meant right. that I could mm-hmm. go back to India and spend some more time there on my own because I had never been, you know, I had always been with a friend. I had never been on my own before and just have, you know, the luxury of that time to write. So... You know, I wasn't, I certainly wasn't, I I was grateful for it, but I didn't want my picture taken really necessarily. And a lot of your stories and and novels even have focused on other cultures. Do you feel now that you have the right to write, even if you're not from other places? Like, have you gotten sort of over that initial fear that you had? I think it's a really complicated question. And I think rightly it's become more sort of a question of the moment. And I think I realized quickly that I wasn't writing about India or anywhere else I had been. I was just 
writing about being an American and it gave me a different lens on it, you know, mm-hmm. writing from within a, another place. I think now that I don't love the idea that we're kind of hemmed in by our cultural perspective and I think we should be able to write, you know, write more broadly than necessarily where we came from. But mm-hmm. I also think that if you're doing that, you have to be aware that you have a, a responsibility to, to be clear about who you are when you're writing and why you're writing it. So if you, you know, the times when I have written from a perspective that's not my own culturally, I try to put that into the book in a, in some kind of way. Like in The Newlyweds, I was writing about a young woman from Bangladesh mm-hmm. and there's a another woman, an American woman in that book who writes an essay for her for an essay contest. She, the heroine of the book, wants to get a scholarship and this other woman helps her. And so I was hoping in that way to show that the perspective was was really, you know, it was from my perspective. It was my idea of what this woman's experience was like. And we had also, she's based on a real person and we had kind of agreed beforehand that I had asked her permission to, to write it. But I still wanted it to be clear in the book that it, you know, that it was my idea of her life. And wasn't The Newlyweds based on a couple you met on a plane or something, or is that a different story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I met her. I was flying to Rochester from New York City, and my grandmother had just died, and I was going to help my dad clear out her just massively cluttered house. So I felt like it was sort of an emotional time for me and that maybe I was especially open to strangers sitting next to me on the plane. I don't usually talk to anybody on airplanes. And I was reading a book by Amitav Ghosh that took place in the Sundarbans, that sort of estuarine area between India and Bangladesh. And the woman sitting next to me said, oh, are you, is that an Indian writer? And I said, yes, you know, but the book is set in Bangladesh. And she said, that's where I'm from. I'm from, I'm from the Sundarbans, that particular area of Bangladesh, which is really distinct and special in its, uh, its geography and wildlife. And so we started chatting and it turned out she had just moved to marry this man who she met online. And they didn't know each other very well. They had spent nine days together in Bangladesh before they decided to get married. And he had never left the United States before he took that trip. I mean, that's an unusual first trip abroad. And she had never been out of her own country. And they were both on the plane. I chatted with her more, but I was just fascinated by the idea that they were ready to yoke their lives together in this way. And they they are still married. They live in Florida. They have two kids. I was going to ask what happened to them. Yeah. Wow. So we started corresponding over email and it was amazing to me to watch not only her, I mean, she was, she already spoke English and she'd almost taught herself. She's just very, she's just very smart person. And she, to watch her English get better, but also to watch her perspective on the city that her new adopted city changed. She was so over the moon about Rochester when she first got there. And she made me see things about it that I, you know, as a kind of a snobby kid coming from New York City, I thought it was a kind of a backwater where my grandparents lived, and which is ridiculous because there's, you know, it's an industrial city. It has all sorts of kind of classic American business, businesses. There's Xerox and Gannett. Right, and yeah. She was amazed, especially by the air quality. She talked about they had a lilac festival there and she thought that was one of the most beautiful things she had seen. She couldn't believe how much space there was and how good the air was. And if you're coming from Dhaka, that is notable. And then I think that her perspective became a little bit more nuanced and she started to feel like the friendliness that she experienced when she first got there, that there was another layer to it and it wasn't quite as easy to become, you know, to be welcomed as she had first thought and she started seeing bias, you know, mm-hmm. in, in a way that she hadn't before as her language got better and she started to understand kind of what mm. was underneath people's <clears throat> words. So that also is fascinating to me. And she had she had said in the way that South Asian people often do when you're traveling in India, when I first met her, she said, you'll have to come home and meet my family. And it's not necessarily, you know, it's just a 
the politeness. But then we decided we were really going to do that. And so we went back together. And we had a funny experience when we had planned to take the same flight. And every flight, my dad always says, having grown up there, every flight out of Rochester, like 9 out of 10 will be grounded for snow. And so... That happened, and so I was coming from New York City, and I I got to JFK, and they weren't there, and they weren't going to make it for the flight. So I, I mean, I went, obviously, I had my ticket. And so when I got there, her parents were waiting for me at the airport, and they didn't speak English, and I went back with them to their apartment, and they, you know, showed me to her room, and I slept in her bed that night with her parents in the apartment without her. And it was so strange because we already, you know, Farah and I had already talked about how I was going to try to write the story, but to wake up in her childhood bedroom as I was trying to imagine, you know, who she was at that age was really, and then to kind of struggle to communicate with her parents was amazing. Wow. And then she arrived, she and her husband arrived a few days later and we had a really wonderful trip together. Isn't it so weird if you had just been reading a different book on that flight, none of that would have happened. We might, I know, I don't know if she would have chatted me up. She really? was definitely, you know, in the market for a friend. <laughs> friends. And we, so yeah, maybe, we, maybe it wasn't the book. We were kind of, you know, we, we had things to offer each other. So how did you take that whole experience and turn it into a novel? Did you just sit down and start doing it? Did you have to like outline the book? How did you translate it into, into fiction? I mean, I am so inefficient. I know that there, I was just, I have a writing group in Brooklyn and and we were talking last night and someone was talking about how they were outlining their book. And I thought, God, that is, you know, if you can do that from the beginning, it must be so comforting, but it's just not the way I work at all. I just kind of have to figure out who the people are. And I do Mm -hmm. a lot of extra writing that, you know, I always end up throwing away. And the plot kind of comes in a secondary way that I think is, is slow, but I'm not sure how else to... Do, it. do you base it more on the characters and then see what happens? I start with the voice. I mean, I just have to find kind of the voice of the book and then, you know, things start happening, but, like, it's it's slow. <laughs> <laughs> so then you moved on from The Newlyweds. No, The Dissonant was before The Newlyweds. Uh, yeah, I wrote The Dissonant and then The Newlyweds. Right? And what inspired that novel? The, the Dissonant. Dissonant. The Dis- you know, I grew up in sort of partly here and then in L.A. when I was 10, we moved to L.A. And so it was inspired by a... Chinese artist who came to visit our high school and was teaching us, he had kind of a residency in our high school and he was teaching us brush painting, traditional brush Mm -hmm. painting. And I loved his, I kept going back for his little informal classes and I really liked learning that and I'd spent some time in the Met in in the CC Wang wing and I was interested in the idea of copying and originality the idea of that originality was so important in western art and that in China it was a different method where at least in traditional Chinese art there was a lot of copying and learning from kind of a, a teacher and I wanted to explore that. And so I had the idea of, of a, a man like him coming to, to Los Angeles and staying with this wealthy family. And my best friend in elementary school was from a really kind of glamorous Chinese family. And they had this house in Beverly Hills that was just, I, I told my mom when I first went to play there, you know, I felt like I was, I would just pretend that I was a princess when I was there. And and so that house was really impressed in my memory. I thought I would set it in that house and write about this man. And my husband and I went before we were married and interviewed some of the artists who were part of the Beijing East Village. And so their work also kind of influenced who the character became. Awesome. So you did The Dissident and then The Newlyweds, and now Lost and Wanted. So how long has it been between these books? Have you been working on this book the whole time, or how long has this book been in the works? It's been a while. I think I sold this book in 2013, but it really was a different book at that time. I wrote a whole draft that I ended up getting rid of. And then, you know, this book that is actually, this book probably took about two years, but there were, you know, three years before that of of writing around. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And I was stunned as I was reading it. I was like, how does she know this much about physics and all the science? And like, did you study all that? There was like so much detail and texture to all that information. Well, I, there might be too much detail for some people. No, 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 I, no. I, I didn't mean, no, oh no, gosh, I didn't no, mean no, it that I didn't way. Mean, I'm sorry. I, no, no, I didn't mean I just I, meant I, like wor- you s- I worried that I got no. like sort of too dorkily immersed in the science. But the thing that made me throw away the old draft and start this one was that I really wanted the narrator to be a physicist. And when I had written the other draft, I made her a writer. And it just, it was too close. I did want to write something that was set in the United States and it was a little bit closer to my experience and that included the experience of being a mother. Yeah. But when I was writing about her as a writer, it just was so boring to me. And I I think the character was boring and there was a physicist in the book but I you know had safely made it a man who was a secondary character so right. I wouldn't have to understand the physics and then I thought to myself you know it's always worked better when something when an idea seems like something that I couldn't do you know that seems huh. kind of too hard and maybe I should try and so I, I got in touch with an astrophysicist who I had known in college and I said you know I want to start at the beginning I don't have a science background can you just recommend like a very basic college textbook like physics for poets you know mm-hmm, and he mm-hmm. sent me one. And then from there, I mean, the wonderful thing about learning about physics is that there's just, there are so many people whose hobby is reading about it, that there are so many books for a general audience and and some of the best physicists in the world write for regular people. And Mm so, you know, discovering that and then discovering the online archive of physics papers that that are published in journals, all of that is accessible and you don't even need an account or a password. I mean, it's one of the most open places on the internet that I've ever found. And it was really exciting to see that you know, once I'd done a little bit of the background reading, I could, I could never understand the math that goes with it. But one physicist said to me, you know, we don't read the math either unless we think it's wrong. (laughs) And that was very encouraging, you know, the idea that you could take something away. Not what a scientist would take away, but something um, from these papers. And then I met some amazing people at Columbia and MIT who took me on tours of their labs. I was especially interested in the in LIGO and the gravitational mm-hmm. wave detection project. And so it was incredible to walk through those places with the people who were working there. And physicists are fabulous to talk to. They just are, everyone I met was just obsessed with their work and loved trying to make it clear for an outsider. So actually, Mr. Pepiat, my physics teacher in high school, was one of my favorite teachers of all time. So 
Maybe there's something to that. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's my that's my one data point on physics, basically. But yeah, yeah, I took a physics class in high school where we it was an all girls school in LA, and we we took the P. I remember taking it wasn't really physics; it was called physical science. So it was like a mashup mm-hmm. with chemistry. And the one thing I remember is taking the pH of our different shampoos and <laughs> comparing yeah, yeah, them. I mean, it was really. It was pretty basic, and this was exciting for me. Well, I didn't mean to imply there was too much physics, but I did feel a little <laughs> there, bit there smarter. May, there may be too much physics. No, I felt, like, smarter reading it. I was like, wow, now I'm actually, like, learning other stuff. It's like a side benefit. Like, I get this great story, same but I feel a little me. bit, you know, more Yeah, I mean, same with writing it. it was, it, it's exciting to feel it. If you're going to spend five years working on a book, it's really <laughs> nice to, like, learn, learn something, something. <laughs> yeah, at the same time. That's right. funny. And did you base it on the friendship between Charlie and now, of course, I'm blanking on her name. Of Helen and Charlie. Yes, Helen and Charlie. Did, was that based on a friendship that you had? or That I still have. Um, oh. the, luckily, the, the woman, the, the, Charlie is really a whole bunch of people together. But I had a really close friend in college who I'm still friends with, but she lives somewhere else, and it's just hard to keep in touch. And I thought when I was starting to write this book that for years, romantic relationships seemed important in, there was always kind of a, a romance in the books and that feeling of loss, especially, you know, the love ending mm-hmm. was important, especially for the first book of stories. And I thought if I could write that about romantic relationships, why would it be any less kind of powerful to write it about a friend who I felt, you know, in a certain way I had lost. And at that point, in this point in my life, that that loss was resonating more than, you know, old mm-hmm. boyfriends I had right. forgotten about, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> you know, it's funny, One of the things I really liked, you know, I've had, as I'm sure all of us now that we're, you know, in our 40s, have lost a lot of people right along the way. And whenever the loss happens, you like stop and reflect on like the whole relationship. And I feel like depending on where you are at the time of the loss, it makes you feel like, well, am I allowed to be this sad? Like we were super close. But right now we're not. Like right now she lives across the country or right now I'm so in my kid world or whatever, yeah. that it's like, is it okay? And I feel like there was a lot of that in this book. Like, well, we kind of lost touch or do they really want me to speak? Right. And or, when you yeah. actually, when someone, when someone dies and you realize that there was this time that you had that you could have, you know, I think at this point we've all lost a friend, mm-hmm. you know, in a more permanent way. And, yeah. and you realize, God, there were all those nights, you know, what was I doing when I could have been out with him or her, you know, and now that it's just, it seems incredible at this age when suddenly someone's yeah. life was cut short. So there was, you know, there was that too, just trying to write about grief. And someone just asked me yesterday, like one of those, like, what would you tell yourself if you were younger? And I was like, honestly, I would have said like, go spend more time with all those people. <laughs> Cause you just don't know. Spend time with people you love you don't more. Know, Cause right. you just never know. Right. Not to sound like, you know, trite or whatever. But anyway, I thought that was one of the things I really enjoyed in this particular book. And the way you just made Charlie like comes so alive in so many ways, but just off the page. Like she, I feel like she could walk in here and I would be like, oh, <laughs> I know <laughs> that's you. That's nice. I hope, I hope that, that that's the goal, right, no, with I fiction. Mean, for sure. So I read one interview that you did with Women on Writing, and you said that you write very slowly so you don't always have time to share your work. So how slow, and you mentioned just now, of course, that it took you several years. How slow is slow? Like, do you have a word count a day? Do you have, do you just, like, meander? Is it that you write slowly or that you take your time to think through the stories? I don't remember saying that. I definitely share my work before with oh, yeah. a lot of This is a while ago. Maybe 
Maybe I dug up some. No, well, I don't know. I have friends who I I show things to. I have this wonderful group of women in Brooklyn. We don't actually share work at our meetings because a lot of us, most people are teaching as well and have families and, you know, you don't want to add extra homework. But Mm -hmm. we do make kind of individual partnerships within the group. And I have some other, you know, sort of old writing friends who I share with. I do more of a, like, sit down three hours sort of thing. I don't like to... The word count seems kind of counterproductive to me because, Mm -hmm. you know, you can put words down and they're not the right words. But I try to just kind of get to my desk. It's different than it was before I had kids. I was very regimented, which is just kind of characteristic of my personality in general. (laughs) But, like, I really like to have the same three hours of of new writing time. And then in the afternoon, I did a lot of freelance work before my kids were born. I would be working on an article or, or, you know, maybe going back to what I had done in the morning and and revising, but just to have those hours that were supposed to be for new writing. And I still try to stick with that, although I'm not as, not quite as good at it. You don't do any teaching, do you? You mentioned that. I don't. I mean, I occasionally teach a class at the Y or something, but, um, or visit classes, but I'm not employed at a university. No, no, I, (laughs) and do you do, you do some freelancing now or? Yeah, I do a little bit. I mean, sometimes an essay or, you know, a book review or something. That's awesome. And so what do you want to have happen next in your life? Like, are you going to do another book for the next couple of years? Do you have... Yeah, I mean, I want to write another novel. I have sort of a vague idea, but really vague. So I just... And I also love writing short stories. So I usually do that when I'm, you know, when I have a... Sometimes, I mean, I, I do it whenever I have an idea. I don't mm-hmm. feel like I have ideas for stories that often. So when I have one, I try to stop. You know, if it's not an absolute crunch time with the book, I usually try to stop and write it. I love the idea that some, you know, when I'm old, I can have a even older than I am now. I could, <laughs> oh, stop. You're not old. At the end. You can't call yourself old because that's like insulting me. So. At the, at the, I would like someday to be able to publish a book of all the stories because the stories, they're a little bit less influenced by anyone else. I mean, you get stories are edited usually, but usually only after they're accepted somewhere. And they're it's usually light editing. And mm-hmm. I feel like they're the place where I can do the most experimenting. And, and if I have an idea that seems really weird to me, I can try it. And so, you know, someday I would love to collect all the stories together, but I'm not in a rush to do that. They just feel like absolute kind of free play time. Well, it should be fun, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you feel a little more confident now at this stage of life than when you were starting out with all that pressure on you? Like when you have a book coming out now, are you like, how do you feel about going into the publicity of this and reception of it like are you as nervous as you were when you were younger no I mean so I definitely have moments of it but I am more I am definitely more confident speaking in front of people I feel like public speaking is something I had to grow into but I think I understand it a little better now. You seem great to me. <laughs> We're not public. It's like in my office. But. Um, yeah, this is easier. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm grateful when people read the book and I'm happy to visit book clubs and, you know, go please to a bookstore where people, you know, want to come listen. I think it's nice a lot of times where when you can have a conversation instead of just stand up there and read. I think yeah. a lot of people like that more. And so, and bookstores are more open to all different kinds of formats now. So it has gotten easier. I'm going to one tonight with like four people talking for the launch of a book in Brooklyn, actually. Anyway, but I agree. Those are really fun to watch. Yeah. I think there should be a way for people who can't end up going to the book events to see all that great content. You know, I feel like it should be like. No, absolutely. I always talk to, so Julie Oranger and I started this, this group in Brooklyn and she, um, we met because we were doing an event in Phoenix with our first book. So Mm -hmm. her husband was also there. He had his book out at that time. And then there was another writer and we, it was in a bar, but it was outside and there was, it was near the airport. And so there was, 
planes flying overhead, and we were like, oh my God, how's this gonna work? It was actually a fabulous event because they were serving beer. I mean, it's so simple, but like it needs to feel fun. Yeah. You know, it's much nicer to listen to somebody read from their work of literature while you're drinking a beer. Yeah. <laughs> I went to, um, so I had had Greer um, Hendrix on the day that Anonymous Girl came out, and she was telling me about their launch event, and she's like, but my husband's bringing really good wine, <laughs> so it'll make all the difference. I'm like, Absolutely. okay. Yeah, yeah and, more, and more people, you know, the, yeah. the more writers, the better. Yeah. <laughs> will your whole schedule be on your website? For your- yeah, yeah, it will. I just actually am only just making a website right now, <laughs> which I probably should have done earlier, but it will be on my website. Okay, good. Twitter. And do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think if you're not already a completely passionate reader, then there's no point in doing it. And reading is how you learn. Writing every day is really helpful, I think. And I think also the, you know, I think most of us, myself included, don't know what our interesting stories are. We think that there's something that people want to hear and it's almost never what's interesting about you is almost never what you think is interesting about you and so I think you know kind of writing the thing that scares you or the thing that seems you know the thing that you can't forget but seems too strange or too hard is probably the way to go you know to kind of push yourself to do what's uncomfortable well thank you so much thank you so much for talking to you and good luck with the lunch thank you it's really exciting thanks okay Today's episode was sponsored by Cereal Box, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com, CerealBox.com, delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.